Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, in this new episode of Investor Series, we spoke with Sophie Bacalar, partner at Collaborative Fund, a network of fund managers investing across asset classes by identifying and supporting companies that live at the intersection of for-profit and for-court. Sophie's journey as an investor emerged on the back of three different startups that she launched. It was after the second company was acquired, however, that she started to think about climate change during a year backpacking around the world. Over the course of her travels, she realized how far behind the US was in taking actions against climate change, and she decided to pivot towards a career with more impact. In this episode, we not only take a dive into the thesis being Collective fund, but we will also look at alternative ladders in this landscape today. Why are alternative ladders so important to fighting climate change? What are the main solutions and the challenges they face? Are these solutions sustainable or susceptible to greenwashing? Join us for a deep dive into sustainable fashion ladder and how to measure its impact. The second part of the show, Sophie explains what she likes to hear from founders who pitch to her and what she recommends to any who may be interested to do so. She now explains her tricks for maintaining a good work-life balance and what podcast she recommends. Sophie, welcome to the show. Hi, Sophie. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I'm looking forward to this great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with Collaborative Fund, which invests and support companies that live at the intersection of for-profit and for good. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm always excited to talk about Collaborative Fund and the great work that we're doing. It's definitely one of my, if not my favorite topics. So thanks for having me. 
So you're welcome so let's start as usual with a 30 second introduction about collaborative fund. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you teed it up really well. Um, I think the simplest version of our investment thesis is the one that's persisted since day one when we launched the fund back in 2010. And it's really well visualized by this um, graphic that my partner and the founding partner of Collaborative Fund, Craig Shapiro, sort of drew for, um, when, when launching the fund. It's these two, two overlapping circles and one says for profit and one says for good. And the intersection um, is where we see exponential opportunity, and that's where we like to invest. So a very sort of classic example of, of this thesis playing on the real world is one that, again, Craig uses, uses frequently and has referenced since the beginning, which is, you know, if you were to be, if you were shopping for a car maybe a decade ago, uh, you might be the type of consumer who was looking for something fast and cool and sexy and maybe something like a Lamborghini or a Porsche or a Ferrari, you know, something that that really spoke to your persona or or projected um, what you what you wanted into the world. Or you might be someone like my little sister who's been an environmentalist since she was born and all she cares about is is her environmental footprint and she was a very early um, adopter of the Toyota Prius because all, that's that's where she was um, that's where she was focused. And so traditionally you kind of have these two totally separate demographics, right? People who cared about the sleek cool car and people who cared about you know, doing good in the world. And then along came Tesla. And that is where we see this incredible exponential opportunity because it marries both the self-interested part of, uh, of our um, sort of basic nature with the desire to do good and have a positive impact in the world, and which is becoming just increasingly uh, critical to, to consumers. So that's where we like to play is at that intersection. Um, and, you know, of course, that extends to all sorts of categories and stages and focus areas, one of which has been climate since the very beginning of the fund, because, of course, that's a place where looking at the intersection of for-profit and for-good um, can really, really uh, have massive impact both economically and in terms of um, uh, you know, doing good in the world. So let's go back a little bit about uh, your story, uh, you know, your background. I mean, what are you passionate about? Uh, what do you do besides, you know, working on supporting and investing in those uh, uh, exciting founders? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like you, your best self? As I always ask, like, who is Sophie? Outside of work, you mean? or, or Exactly. We like to bring, you know, the, the, the human back at the center of the interview and then there's a... Uh, all surroundings that make sense, but uh, we like to connect the dots uh, a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to separate work and personal life for me because they do blend so seamlessly. And I think that's a, a clear byproduct of the fact that I genuinely really love what I do. Uh, I think I read a lot about sort of life hacks for effectively how to get people out of bed, how to, you know, get yourself motivated and find energy. And those things don't resonate with me particularly well because I don't feel that. I wake up and I'm eager to jump out of bed and turn on my phone and see what happened while I was asleep and 
answer my emails and connect with founders and my colleagues. So uh, work and personal life do intermix quite a bit. And I think that's also partly a byproduct of working in climate. I think climate activists and entrepreneurs and investors, we all take it very seriously and it, it tends to bleed into your personal life as well. Uh, but outside of outside of work, I, you know, I like to stay very active. I do a lot of exercising. I do a lot of yoga and running. I have a very big family that I spend a lot of time with and a puppy who is hopefully napping now and you won't hear in the background, but um, might start yipping at some point. Uh, she's definitely a center, central point in my life as well. So now tell us a bit more about your uh, different, I would say, work-life experience prior to a collaborative front. I mean, I saw you also, you're also a founder, so you have, a, uh, you know, this uh, double hat now on the other side of the of the table. Uh, I mean, what did you learn during that that journey in a way that it gave you an edge to, to join the firm as a, as a partner? Yeah, I, I'm always amazed at that investors who can do this work without having been on the operating side or without having founded a company because... It is such a unique experience. I have the good fortune, I guess, of having done it two, maybe you could say three times um, founding companies. And each one was ex an extremely different experience. Um, the first company was, was very small, maybe more like a lifestyle business. The second was an enterprise SaaS company, which we basically founded, ran, and sold within two years. It was a very accelerated process and really a crash course in what it's like to start a business and run a business and sell a business. Um, and then the third was in a totally different space. And we built that company up to a much larger scale and it was a venture backed business. And so you really get to see all the different sides of what it takes to bootstrap a business, to fundraise, to manage large teams. Uh, those things are so critical for me now sitting in my seat as an investor because I want to understand where the messiest parts of a business are, or the parts that you can't really uh, shine and gloss over too, too effectively when you're talking to investors, or you can try to, but if you've been on the other side, you can see through that a little bit and know where the really messy parts of building a business are. Um and it also just builds a lot of empathy, which I think is really critical because a lot of what we do is, you know, it's we're, we're in the people business. A lot of this is relationship building. A lot of it is relationship management. A lot of the messiest parts of, of companies end up being personal. And, you know, I often joke that we're, we're sort of in the therapy business as investors as well, because there's so much that... Uh, can go wrong on an interpersonal level between founders and teams and, and, and excuse me, um, that, that having been on that side and, and building empathy around the personal side of building a business, I think is really, really helpful. So uh, one thing that you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the interview that, uh, you know, working in, uh, in climate was something that uh, really was motivating you, uh, you know, every day. So maybe, would like to understand a little bit more, like, you know, what has been your driver to jump into the, the this clean or non-climate tech uh, industry? I mean, do you have any specific aha moments that you can recall or would define as such? Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the previous, uh, you know, companies that you created were not specifically targeted or in the space uh, in itself. 
Yeah, it's a great question because I think a lot of us have very windy paths to, to bring us into climate. And I definitely did have a sort of uh, aha moment, as you call it. So my second company, the one that I mentioned that moved sort of quickly and um, we we built and sold, the company was acquired in 2016. After that acquisition, I did the incredibly uh, generic cliche thing of backpacking around the world for a year. You know, I figured I had some money in my pocket. I didn't have anywhere to be. And I just packed a backpack and started traveling East. No real plans, just figured I'd try to see the world and um, have some new experiences. And that was really the moment that I got interested in climate. I mean, I would have called myself an environmentalist since I was a baby. It's a, a a space that I'm, I've always been passionate about and interested in. But even when I left for that trip back in 2016, which it's crazy to think now because it wasn't that long ago, but uh, back then climate really wasn't top of mind for most people, at least within the, the crowds that I was hanging out with in New York City. You know, everybody cared about climate and cared about the environment, but it wasn't really a topic of dinner, com- dinner party conversation. It wasn't something that we were all um, really actively addressing. And then when I embarked on this trip, I saw how far ahead the rest of the world was in terms of thinking about the impacts of climate change. Uh, it did become a regular topic of conversation as I was staying in hostels or eating at cafes with other expats um, who were traveling. And it it really dawned on me that we were incredibly far behind um, in the U.S. and in, even in New York, which tends to sort of lead some of these um, uh, progressive initiatives in the U.S. And it also, of course, you know, spending spending a year backpacking and kind of communing with nature a little bit more gives you a more personal stake, I think, in in the effects of climate change. And so when I came back from that trip, um, again, I guess this was late 2016, early 2017, that's when I I really committed myself and knew that whatever I did next, I wanted it to be focused on climate and sustainability. Um, But again, at that point, there really were not a lot of investors who were thinking about climate change and investing in climate. Collaborative was very unique in that um, Craig Shapiro, again, the, the founder, was writing about sustainability and talking about it and thinking about the way that cultural trends were shifting in uh, in that consumers were starting to think about things like their their environmental impact and their purchasing behavior. And that was driving, slowly starting to drive some shifts in consumer purchasing behavior that he believed and I believed and still believe would drive uh, big shifts in in, sort of cultural trends that then lead to shifts in in consumer trends. So before we go uh, into detail about uh, Collaborative Front, uh, as we discussed prior to the the interview, I'd like to cover like uh, one, you know, uh, part of the uh, the industry of climate tech in itself. And uh, the one that we're talking about was about like uh, alternative Eco of eco-friendly uh, leather alternative that you can uh, that you can find today. Uh, what are the potential to contribute uh, to the fight against climate change? I mean, maybe we can start by you know if you could give us like uh, some data points regarding uh, the industry 
uh, and the contribution uh, of the what we call animal-based ladder uh, into uh, into the climate change in, in terms of uh, GSG uh, emission. Um, just to reframe kind of like the, the problematic and then we'll dive into the, the eco part of it. Yeah, it's so hard to quantify the impact of animal-based leather on climate change. I could throw out some really big, scary numbers, but it ultimately really depends on how you classify alternative leather and its role in, in um, our global supply chains. And, I, and, and what I'm getting at there is that a lot of people think of leather as a, as a uh, uh, sorry, let me start over. A lot of people think of leather as a, a byproduct of the meat industry. It's sort of waste that's then turned into leather. And so that really changes how you might consider leather as a, as a material impact on climate change. But that's just fundamentally not true. Uh, leather is actually the most profitable byproduct or co-product of the meat industry. And so if you think of it as almost a subsidy for meat, you it's very hard to disentangle the impact of the meat industry from the leather industry. And so if we were to completely separate out GHG emissions um, and just focus on animal-based leather, it would look fairly small compared to things like meat or transportation or construction. But when you consider them in tandem with the meat industry and that leather really subsidizes meat prices, if you removed the entire animal-based leather industry, meat prices would skyrocket and make those um, that industry basically unsustainable in terms of like economic viability. That's when you start to see what a huge impact leather can have. So it, it's hard to quantify exactly what GHG emissions are from leather, unless you can you can commingle them with um, the meat industry as well. And by the way, the, the impacts of leather go far beyond just GHG emissions. Of course, it's incredibly water intensive and water polluting industry. There's a lot of chemicals used in the tanning process and dyeing process for leather. It's harmful to uh, the the people working in tanneries, obviously like 70% of animal skins are processed in developing countries. They don't have sufficient wastewater systems. So the toxic waste that's produced during the process often ends up in groundwater. And that's all without even mentioning the obvious uh, ethical and um, sort of moral complications of, of slaughtering animals for a material that, unlike a lot of the materials we talk about when we're uh, discussing climate change is is really not an essential material. It's not one that we rely on uh, to to live our lives in the way that we do food and construction materials. So maybe let's let's dive a little bit into the uh, you know uh, alternative vegan eco green leather. And I like to make the separation between you know we have all the. Uh, petroleum-based, uh, you know, like the, the fake leathers, plastic leathers and stuff like that. And we'll not cover that uh, today because I think uh, they are a fake good solution and are creating sometimes more problems than, uh, than it is. Uh, I think here what uh, really uh, would be super interesting is to dive into uh, this eco part of it. 
So maybe you can give to, to the audience like an overview of the different uh, existing alternative solution uh, and maybe uh, some of the upcoming uh, innovation uh, with their potential and eventually weaknesses that you, uh, you have seen uh, so far. Yeah, definitely. It, it's hard to gloss over the sort of synthetic or plastic-based alternatives that you mentioned, only because a lot of the so-called quote-unquote eco-friendly um, new and emerging technologies in the space are actually either variants of, of that synthetic uh, polymer plastic-based solution or they're combined with it. So I think it's worth just a quick, quick mention that Obviously, alternatives to animal-based leather have existed for many, many decades. I mean, pleather and vinyl were quite popular materials back in the 70s and 80s. And while it is vegan, to your point, it's not necessarily good for the environment because it's effectively just um, plastic. So what synthetic leather traditionally has been is um, effectively a, a, a synthetic polymer like PU or PVC that's coated on top of a textile base. So something like cotton or polyester. And then the, the resin on top is embossed with sort of a grain-like um, texture to make it look like leather. And so I think that's important because a lot of what we've seen over the past five, 10 years has been effectively a variant of that. But instead of pure PU and PVC, the that base layer is, or that um, interim layer is mixed with a plant synthetic hybrid. And so that's a lot of what I think you might be referring to is um, the, the plethora of apple and pineapple and grape based leathers, which um, tend to be mixed with that, that more traditional or, or more um, established type of synthetic leather. And so those are better in that they're obviously using less petroleum-based products because it's a, it's a combination, um, but they are mixed with plastics. And so often not a big step change from what we've seen over the past several decades. And part of what gets us so excited about the really new emerging technologies over the last couple of years is that we are seeing some big step changes. Um, so there's a company called Natural Fiber Welding, which full disclosure, we're investors in. So obviously there's a, a little bit of bias there, but that is a big step change versus uh, some of those companies that are combining with synthetic polymers in that it's 100% bio-based and 100% plastic free and doesn't use any water. It's a complete shift in that it doesn't use plastic and it's fully circular or fully biodegradable, which is something that you couldn't say about um, the, the sort of wave of fruit and vegetable hybrid materials of the past decade or so. Uh, in addition to companies like that, you obviously have the, the mushroom-based leather alternatives that have been getting a lot of, of um, attention over the last few years. So those are companies like Microworks and Bolt Threads. And the way that that works is uh, they are taking mushroom cells and growing them into mycelium, which is the part of the fungus that grows underground. Um, and that produces a foam-like mat, which then can be you know, processed and turned into something that kind of looks like leather. And so that's been a really exciting innovation and that obviously mushrooms have no carbon footprint because they um, sequester CO2. And 
that's been an exciting innovation, although it's still at a relatively small scale. It's only fairly recently that those have been turned into commercially viable products and have hit the market in pretty small um, sort of capsule collections. So uh, for instance, in 2021, I think Stella McCartney showed um, a bag from, from uh, Bolt Threads, which is called the Milo handbag on the runway. And so we're starting to see some, some commercial traction, but it's still on a fairly small scale. Um, and the last innovation I'll mention in this space, which I think is still, again, pretty nascent, but very exciting, is not really an alternative, but a true substitute. And these are companies like Feature Labs and Modern Meadow, which are growing animal leather in a lab using animal cells. And so that's basically a one-for-one -one replacement with animal leather, but um, uses basically just animal cells instead of an entire industrial farm to produce the materials. Do you see like in the, you know, out of those like uh, four to five like companies uh, in, in, in a way uh, type of like, you know, or technique or uh, to, to build this, uh, this new alternative letters, do you see like a, um, large corporation groups, uh, fashion uh, retailers starting to look at that as well? Uh, how is their interaction with, uh, with the ecosystem? Do you see that there is like uh, something that uh, uh, they want to invest or they're just looking at it, stepping back, and then uh, will support eventually the, the the winner of the of the category. No, we're seeing really active participation from some of the biggest retailers in the world. I think they're seeing not just the pressure from consumers and regulators, and also the necessity of making changes given the sort of environmental footprint and impact of these materials on global supply chains, um, but also the economic and performance advantages of adopting new materials. There's not an immediate cost advantage to switching to a lot of these um, alternatives or substitutes because they tend to carry a relatively high premium in that they're in the earlier stages of, of, um, of growth. And so there's they, they haven't come down the cost curve just yet, but long-term, we can very easily project that companies like natural fiber welding are going to be much, much um, bigger cost savings to, to brands than, you know, again, animal-based leather, which requires huge industrial farms and is very expensive to produce. So there's a lot that's driving the interest from retailers. I will say also that you might be surprised at how many even really high-end, really premium uh, designers and retailers have been using alternatives for many years. You know, a lot of iconic uh, consumer products, including I think like Gucci or Louis Vuitton's uh, flagship or, or um, uh, sorry, let's go back. Um, yeah, even even a lot of the the very famous consumer products like Gucci's handbag, for instance, has been using faux leather for decades now. So it's not, it's not a huge leap for them to make the shift. The fact that there are, pro there are materials now that are better and high performing and hopefully less expensive while also being better for the environment just makes it kind of a no brainer for these companies to, um, to make the switch, especially if they're getting pressure from consumers, which is something we're seeing really drive the, this change. So when you look at no, like, um, those four, five, six uh, companies. I mean, as you mentioned, they're still very early stage. So 
how long do you think it will take to go uh, to go to market uh, to start to see uh, market penetration that start to to make sense uh, and really replacing uh, this? Uh, um, I would say an animal based leather or the, the synthetic uh, pure synthetic one or mixed synthetic as we uh, as you mentioned uh, prior to that. I mean, what is blocking in a way uh, those companies? Is it still like uh, still because the R and D is still early stage, or is it like the the way to scale that and to uh, have this old production in place, or is it simply like uh, market adoption, or maybe some regulation there are blocking it? So, what would be your uh, the, the what are, what needs to happen to 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 go mainstream there and really have this uh, viable alternative on the on the market? Yeah, in some cases, like with a lot of the mushroom-based alternatives, there are questions around scale up and scaling up the technology itself. But for some of these companies, it's really about production and just getting the capital investment to be able to scale up production. Um, and then again, bringing down that cost curve because so many of these alternatives are still at a premium to animal-based leather, they need... Uh, interim commercial partners or pilot partners who can take some of that uh, price premium. So brands like Stella McCartney, for instance, or like um, uh, like brands from LVMH who are priced at a premium and can take that additional cost while these companies are scaling up so that then they can go out into more mass retailers who have a little bit more price sensitivity. So it's finding really strong commercial partners right now who are willing to, to price at a, at a slightly higher premium. And it's just scaling up production, which is time, cost, and labor intensive. But I do think over the next five years, we're really going to see a pretty big um, exponential shift in, in this market. And we're just, again, we're in the early stages, but these products are in market. Natural Fiber Welding launched a, a completely 100% plant-based quote-unquote leather shoe with all birds just a few months ago, and it's performing extremely well. So that's that's the tip of the iceberg, but we are starting to see these, these companies penetrate the market. And I think that's only going to increase as consumers show that there's demand for them. I mean, ultimately, that's what drives this is consumers need to want it. They need to be willing to pay a little bit extra and they need to demand from their brands that they stop using animal-based leather or else there's not enough incentive in the short term for, for brands to make the switch. In terms of uh, regulation, do, do you see any like uh, regulation that are in place or upcoming regulation that are kind of like the tailwind into that uh, into that market? Or maybe some of them are missing that should be uh, should be in place to really again speed up the adoption and uh, the, the go to market. Yeah, I mean there are some very counterintuitive uh, regulations in place, particularly around import taxes and alternative leathers actually incurring a pretty high import tax versus animal-based leather. And that's partly because of the um, history around synthetic or alternative leathers being primarily plastic-based. So it, it does make sense to some extent, but there is just a big tax advantage to selling animal-based leather over any substitutes or alternatives. That is one thing I know a lot of the larger brands in the space are very actively pushing against right now. And so hopefully that 
changes because that will help account for some of that price premium and the disparity between uh, animal-based and, and synthetic alternatives or alternatives in general. So I think that's probably the biggest one right now. Um, the, the bigger question is less around regulation and more around investment, which is partly where we come in because I think the one thing all of these companies really need is capital to help scale up production. Um, that's one of the biggest bottlenecks right now, for sure. Speaking about uh, geography, do you see like any difference between the U.S. market, European market versus maybe uh, China or the rest of the world in terms of like, I would say, importing this type of innovation? Um, yeah, it's a really good question because a lot of we are seeing so much growth in the alternative leather market. It's growing extremely rapidly. But a lot of that growth is more in the U U.S. and Europe. Whereas the animal-based leather market is growing really fast in Asia. And so you're seeing a lot of the wins or gains that we're achieving over here be uh, replaced or sub um, supplanted by the, the uh, growth of the animal-based leather market in, in other parts of the world. And that is partly just a, a demand for more premium products, a lot of the um, a lot of the animal-based leather market is footwear and, and automobiles, so it's slightly higher price, more luxury part of the consumer consumer products market. Um, and that is, a, that is a hard thing to fight against. You do have to really change consumers' perception of what luxury and premium means so that it's not as associated with animal-based leather. It can be associated with greener and more climate-friendly materials instead. Um, but it's, it's a tough one because it, it it's, yeah, it's, it's harder to control or predict what's going to happen there. Last question on the this, uh, you know, leather topic. Like, I mean, regarding the impact in itself, I mean, all of those alternatives, like, do you have any idea of how green or sustainable are really uh, those uh, those alternatives, or some of them are still like in this fuzzy area of this uh, greenwashing uh, thing, like taking something better to, in fact, harming on the other side of the uh, of the table? So, um, what's your take there? I mean, um, should we what what is missing to even make it like even more green and sustainable? Um, I mean. What do you see that is coming in the market that really can uh, have that? Yeah, I mean, that is partly what gets me so excited about the innovation of the last couple of years. The real big step changes I mentioned, like companies like natural fiber welding that are fully circular, fully biodegradable, don't use um, large amounts of water that do meet a very high standard and don't fall into that bucket of greenwashing, which I do think you could reasonably accuse a lot of the companies of the last sort of five to 10 years of, of doing in that they are effectively just slightly different materials mixed with, um, with, uh, with plastics and not that much different than vinyl or pleather. But I will say even synthetic, the synthetic leather market is still a big step change versus animal-based leather. I mean, most estimates put animal-based leather at the third most harmful material in the Higg index. It's you know two to five times X the environmental impact of alternatives, even the, the 
pleathers and um, vinyls of the world. So it's still a big difference versus what we see from um, animal-based leather to shift towards alternatives. But we do need a much higher level of integrity around particularly circularity and biodegradability. And that is what's exciting about the newest wave, the newest group of materials that we're seeing in the space, because they are accounting much more, I think, for circularity, just because I think there's been more awareness that uh, there's been a little too much greenwashing in the alternatives um, space in the past. Let's go into the, the specific of um, collaborative fund. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about like the, the story, uh, the genesis of it? I mean, what was the initial gap that uh, like Shapiro and uh, the other founders like uh, saw at first and led to the thesis of the, of the fund? Yeah, so the, again, the broad thesis of collaborative fund since the beginning has been investing at the cross-section uh, or intersection of for-profit and for-good. And so the idea is to invest in companies that are pushing the world forward, doing some good in the world, uh, while also thinking about growth and scale and building big, global, economically viable businesses. And so the idea there is that you can have a really positive impact while also creating big, successful, meaningful businesses, and that those two things don't have to be um, mutually exclusive. And in fact, they can work together and companies that are doing good in the world tend to generate better economic returns and better economic outcomes and companies that are growing and scaling and thinking about their economics have the capacity to do more impact right because by virtue of their scale they're able to have a far, have a far greater reach so that's the original genesis and again that's really extended over the last decade plus into a number of different categories one of which is climate which is what i run at collaborative fund um and even though we've been investing in climate from the beginning, we just recently launched a dedicated climate fund, which we call Collab SOS, which is fully focused on climate tech and investing in climate. And one of the sectors that we're most focused on is um, what we call the new material space. So basically rebuilding global supply chains from the ground up, all the materials that we use in our everyday life from, you know, the the plastic bottles that you might drink out of, to the clothes that you wear, to even the materials that are used to, to construct the building that you're in. Um, and I think that the genesis of that fund and um, the opportunity that we see in new materials is largely derived from opportunity. We really do believe that that idea of rebuilding global supply chains away from, from fossil fuels is a massive, massive opportunity, both in terms of the impact it can have and also the economic outcome that investing in that space can have. So that was partly the genesis. And then we've really structured the fund in a way that's, I think, very unique in that we've leveraged um, a lot of really interesting partnerships to add value to the companies that we're investing in. So one of our partners is Stella McCartney. And a good example is that company that I mentioned, National Fiber Welding, who we invested in. Um, we can introduce natural fiber to Stella and she comes in as a customer and they were able to work together to, to launch new products, which again, helps 
sort of scale the company up because there's a, a commercial partner um, at their beginning stages that helps help scale up and bring the cost curve down a bit for future um, retail partners who might be on a larger scale. So that's just one example, but there are a number of partnerships that we've we've sort of um, activated for this fund to really help our portfolio companies quite a bit. Do you see any other type of like challenges that uh, companies that uh, you invest in are uh, typically, I mean, typically have at that stage and uh, uh, how do you like counter that? And what are the, I mean, often, you know, like uh, uh, founders are looking for like uh, investors that can support them. So uh, in terms of like the collapse, you mentioned already like one way, uh, you know, by building this partnership and helping them. Do you have any other example that uh, you guys uh, provide in terms of support to uh, companies that you invest in? Yeah, I think a lot of the benefit well, I would say that there are a few things that companies at the ser seed series A stage really need help with from their investors. One of which is, is partnerships, customer introductions, commercial scale up. Um, and that, again, is something that we really focus on. We have been very intentional in the way that we've structured our partnerships and our LP base so that we can add a lot of really concrete value there and bring commercial introductions and commercial contracts into um, our investments because that really creates a very a very immediate value to companies. And the other is is capital, right? In addition to just the capital that we provide as investors, it's helping to think through future fundraising. It's helping to make introductions to other investors. It's helping to set um, KPIs, key performance indicators for the next fundraising round. Because one of the biggest problems we see, particularly within climate, is this valley of death that we often talk about where companies really struggle to raise capital for um, a good while because you might be at the stage where you've de-risked your technology and you have some proof of concept, you might even have a, some indication of interest from customers, but to get from there to commercial success is a very, very time and capital intensive process. And finding investment partners who are on the same time horizon as you are, who have the capital to continue supporting, who understand the challenges in building businesses within climate. That is very hard. You know, there are a lot of new funds that have come into the climate space in the re in recent years. Um, there's a lot of new capital that's that's flowing in, which is great overall, but it's not necessarily um, from investors who really understand what it means to invest in climate and what those um, capital and time needs are for for a lot of these businesses. So. You mentioned that uh, new material, uh, rethinking like the uh, logistic approach of uh, all of those materials is something that you guys are uh, super uh, interested in. I mean, I'd like to, to understand, according to you, like which sectors right now uh, for you are the most promising in terms of like what I call ICR, so impact cash return is definitely what uh, what you guys do in, with, the, with the fund here. Like, so... Um, do you have any like underdogs or subsectors or subcategories uh, that you are particularly uh, excited to and looking at now? Yeah, it's, it shifts month to month. Um, a lot of the areas that we were focused on or not focused on maybe a year ago have 
have shifted pretty dramatically, partly in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act, because that's changed so much about where opportunity is within climate. Um, I do think that the the new material space broadly is one that not a lot of investors have have focused in. I think it is such a big opportunity. Again, global supply chains, all the materials that we use in our day-to-day lives really do need to be rebuilt away from fossil fuels. And that is a massive opportunity. Um, but it's, again, not one that you, you see as many investors getting super active in. Uh, we do spend time looking at metals and mining. I wouldn't say that that's an underdog category. It seems like one where there are plenty of investors who are focused, particularly, again, in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but I, I do think materials broadly is one that is is not getting as much attention as it as it deserves. So out of, you know, and taking the opposite side of, uh, of, of the table here, like out of all the pitch you hear, I mean, in your opinion, which are the solution or like categories that, you know, where you believe makes no sense whatsoever. And so like that could be even like a waste of time or, or resource, even greenwashing. Uh, do you have any examples of uh, things that you don't believe at all uh, without naming anyone, but just to, you know, kind of understand the spectrum here? Yeah, it's going to seem very contradictory to the rest of our conversation, but oddly enough, I, I would think a lot of the alternative leather space probably has fallen into that category up until pretty recently. Um, again, it's one where a lot of the changes have been fairly incremental over the last maybe decade or so, and it's only recently that we're starting to see true sort of um, transformational technology that actually has commercial applications or has the potential for commercial scale. Um, so that 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 would be one. Although I don't mean to imply that you know a lot of these companies don't add value or have a place in the market, but there there has been a decent amount of greenwashing that's gone on. So. Um, yeah, I think that would be my my one example. But overall, no, I think we're we're at a really exciting time within climate. Um, this past year, especially, feels like there's been so much really breakthrough innovation and breakthrough technology that's just starting to, you know, crack the surface. So speaking about impact, uh, how do you guess measure impact? I mean. In- Comparison, some, some some funds are putting out there. You know, you need to uh, avoid or remove X uh, gigaton of uh, of CO two or equivalent CO two. Uh, I mean, what are the the process in place uh, with you guys to kind of like assess that? Are you using like any uh, uh, scientific uh, you know framework or you know do you have like a, a team of scientists uh, in house to kind of assess that? I mean, what's the weight uh, in your investment decision as well? Yeah, we're very intentional in that we don't use very specific or um, quantified ESG targets or or anything like that. That's a really intentional decision on our part, partly because we haven't found a process or method that we think actually works. And so instead of being constructive to the process, we think it's only inhibitive, um, at least at the stage where we're investing in, because a lot of the real impact that these companies are going to have is many years out. And so if it prevents you from investing in 
breakthrough technology or really um, innovative technology today because companies don't meet the standards, but they will in the future. Uh, that that sort of goes against our process um, because we're we're really looking for companies that are again going to have that that um, are taking very big swings or are taking very big risks and are going to have a really outsized impact. So what's next for collaborative fund? Well, we're we're deploying capital very actively right now. We're looking at a lot of really exciting companies. We have um, capital to put to work in this space. In addition to new materials, which is just one of the categories that we invest in, we're looking at everything from food and ag tech to again metals and mining to construction um, and you know investing in energy and decarbonization broadly. So we're seeing a lot of really exciting. Companies, particularly right now, it feels like a, a, a very active time in the climate ecosystem. Um, so lots of exciting stuff to do. So that's a more personal uh, question that I ask to uh, every guest on the show. I mean, what, what, what's your personal view on the on the climate crisis? I mean, as I always ask, are we doomed? Uh, what would you say to people who feel you know, demoralized or anxious uh, regarding all the already visible consequences of, uh, of climate change? Yeah, we certainly have to take this very seriously, but maybe I'm a little positively jaded in that because I'm looking at so many exciting innovations in the space and meeting with so many very optimistic and energized entrepreneurs that I I feel optimistic and energized myself. I think there are exciting solutions out there. Um, I, I'm hopeful and I... I think we, you know, have to make some really, really massive changes as a society um, as quickly as we possibly can. But there are brilliant people out there working on these problems. And uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that it it does feel that the smartest minds of this young, you know, graduating generation, they all want to work in climate, right? They're not going to Wall Street or, you know, big banks, they they want to solve problems around climate change. And that gives me a lot of hope because when the smartest people are working on a problem, you you sort of hope that they're going to get to a, a positive solution. So um, fingers crossed though. So how can, <laughs> how can the, the community of uh, investors, founders, LPs, uh, experts around the world listening to the show can help you? Help me? Oh, that's such a nice sentiment. Um, well, I'm always looking for companies, great companies and founders to invest in. So if you know somebody or you yourself are starting a company in the climate space, reach out to us. Um, we, we love to hear from you. And um, I think that's probably the, the biggest request right now. Any question I should have uh, asked you that I did not for this uh, first part of the show? Um, no. That was that was pretty comprehensive. <laughs> Fantastic! Thank you so much, Sophie, for your time, your incredible insight uh, on the industry, all the hard work and uh, a passion that you you put uh, into uh, supporting and investing in uh, in founders. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and see you next time.